Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Gabby Ree Show where everything is an experiment. The mindset of old, so the voice in your head that says you're too old for this shit, there's a bunch of reasons it starts to develop, but it can start developing in your late 20s. And from a peak, from an aging, healthy aging, forget peak performance, it's deadly. People with a positive mindset towards aging, and there's like 50 years worth of data here, a positive mindset towards aging. I am thrilled with the, like, the second half of my life, and I think my best days are ahead of me, and you know, exciting possibilities I lie ahead. That translates to an extra seven and a half years of healthy longevity. Gateways of adult development, basically. If you want to thrive in the second half of your life, there's certain things you have to do by certain ages. I, I like to say that like peak performance aging actually starts young. Right, You can make interventions in your late 80s and they're going to really actually matter and impact quality of life. But if you really want to get it right, there's psychological stuff that you want to start paying attention to as early as your 20s. And the first is you, you need to solve the crisis of identity by age 30. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is author Stephen Kotler. You know Stephen's work in flow research and getting into flow state. He works with the Flow Research Collective. Some of his books are The Art of the Impossible, The Rise of Superman, Abundance. And now his latest book is out called NAR, like gnarly, NAR Country. And this was generated out of Stephen at 53 decided, hey, I'm gonna learn a bunch of new tricks in skiing, snow skiing. And not only tricks like, oh, I got air. I'm talking about very dangerous, and difficult tricks. And even though Steven is a really good skier, it doesn't really, I, it doesn't matter. It's like, hey, this stuff is hard. He gave himself a period of time to do it. He went through extensive lengths and he shares all of this in his book and in the conversation to not only prepare for it intelligently and to you know, mitigate risk and physical harm, getting injured, things like that. But then he starts to give you the science on aging and learning as we get older. I really appreciated this book because it's that blend of, hey, I was scared 
I didn't know how to do it. This is how I approached it. Here's the data about what happens in your brain. Like for example, at around your 50s, both hemispheres of your brain start to really fluidly communicate to each other. So that can make it very conducive for learning. So he uses himself as the experiment, gets all the information together, and then once they sort of understood how to proceed towards this goal, they actually then took a group and shared it with them to make it real. And I really appreciate Stephen's work because he's almost like a reluctant spokesperson. It's like somebody who wants to understand this stuff. He loves, you know, figuring out ways to create environments to be in flow state. But yet, you know, he's shy. He doesn't love doing interviews. And he does an incredible blend of bringing the humanness with the data and bringing them together and making it not only achievable. So he discusses what we can do when we're younger to support ourselves in this sort of better, healthy aging. And then the things that limit us as we get older to either doing new things or doing what we want or feeling like we can. This will apparently be his last book, maybe for a couple of years. And uh, I always love talking to Stephen Kotler. Enjoy. Stephen Kotler. Gabby Reese. What do you mean you're going to put a stop to it? I was I was commenting on congratulating you on another book. Is it enough madness? <laughs> well, I was kind of joking. Um, I'm going to take, I'm going to try to take next year off. It's not the writing. I love the writing. It's uh, the it's the PR cycles and like as soon as the publisher sort of locks you into your your books coming out, like it starts this whole massive process. That um, I've done for you know almost ten years straight, like every year, and I'm just I want a couple of years off. Had enough. Well, because you're in a way, well, not in a way, you're an introvert, and so I think it's it, is it more about that, like that constant kind of exposing yourself and having to deal with that, or what is it about the cycle? No, I'm, it's I mean, so uh, it's. It's quite simply that I just like, I want to be able to, there's a whole bunch of research stuff. There's just a whole bunch of stuff that I want to be able to spend my time on without having to focus on taking six months to do a campaign. And I love it. And I, you know, the fact that I have readers and and, and people, you know, like the book, it's amazing. Um, And you should never get to the point where you sort of regret, you know, resent or regret that. But I, it's been a lot. It's just been a lot in a row, and with world events, there hasn't been like other things. Like there hasn't been break. Um, there used to be, you know, stretches of time where I wasn't, you know, either writing a book or promoting a book. Um, I just want to, you know, calm down for a couple of years and, and learn some new things, have more stuff to talk about. I think that what you're just saying is so important. It's almost like to to be able to grow and and have real experiences, like your latest book, Nar Country you have to retreat and not show everyone like, Hey, look what I'm doing. And let's, let me talk about everything I'm doing. You actually have to go live it. And it's such an interesting thing. Cause that's a complete conflict with what our culture is saying. They're saying, Hey, don't get off that treadmill because you'll, you'll lose people. They can't pay attention. We just got to keep rolling. And I really appreciate that. Laird always talks about how do I capture things if I'm doing them? 
Oh, we, it's the, I mean, yeah, it's the funniest. I mean, he, it's so true. And of course, Laird would know more, more than I would, but it's something I've learned since in our country, you know, people keep wanting photos or videos of me skiing, but like that interferes with the skiing and that's a mental health concern, right? I'm, I'm, I'm skiing to sort of for my, for my brand and everything else. So um, I end up not, you know, filming a whole lot or things like that. And you're right. It's the exact opposite of what the culture does. But it also, you know, a lot in goal setting theory says don't talk about your goal, right? Keep them to yourself, right? People don't seem to understand that, but it's really demotivating to make, make that stuff public. And it puts a lot more pressure on you. Or if you're wired like me, I'll end up putting a lot more pressure on myself. Yeah. Well, so let's dive into NAR country because really the book is is probably a happy accident to this quest that you decided to go on, which I think um, for me, you know, you and I are close to the same age. I was like, oh my goodness, I could not imagine learning, uh, you know, this type of skiing. Uh, and and you're already a proficient skier, so you you had the wheelhouse. But maybe just set up for the audience how you've landed yourself into this. Yeah. Where it comes from. Yeah. So, because it's, uh, an, it's incredible. Let me like, let me back up one step. Cause it make it'll just make it easier. I think books about peak performance aging. Right. And, uh, there have, you have to start sort of like to think about this. You just got to start with like the traditional view of aging, which is the long, slow rot theory, right? Like all of our mental skills, our physical skills decline over time. And there's nothing we can do to stop the slide. This is the dominant theory of, of aging, basically, for the 20th century. And around the late 90s, holes start appearing in it, but nobody really notices or talks about them, and they're in like 11 different fields. And they start cohering into, into a thing that you might call peak performance aging, probably around 2018, 2017, right in that. And that's all backstory. But what the new uh, theory says is all the old stuff that we used to think declines over time, mm-hmm. we now know they're all use it or lose it skills. And if you never stop using them, the research shows you can hang on to them, even advance them far later in life. Maybe no more. So that's all backstory. It's before COVID. I'm on the phone with Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who's the godfather of flow psychology. Yeah. And um, it's our last conversation. He died. He dies during COVID. Stephen, can you just say his name slowly? Because I've read it so many times. I I really just, because he's important. Mihai Chick sent me hi. Thank you. You're totally welcome. Somebody had to do that for me at some point. Like that's that softly. And and that's when I finally got it. I was like, oh, okay. I got it now. So he's the godfather of flow psychology, which is obviously a field I've worked in for 30 years. Um, I've worked on mostly on the neurobiology, but you know. Yeah, I had called him up both because he, he's very old. He was in his 80s and he had a stroke and I was a little worried about him. And also because, you know, he he's an outdoors guy. He was a, a lifelong hiker, lived in Montana, was a mountaineer and, and, and sort of did some studies on, on rock climbers. But there was a bunch of interviews that got translated of his out of Italian. And in these interviews, he's name dropping like classic 60s Yosemite Valley climbers. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, there is no way you know these names if you weren't actually a much more serious rock climber, right? So I'm thinking all these things and, and I start talking to some of his students and they tell stories about like, Mike would come back from a weekend in the, in, you know, in the outdoors with like bruises on his face 
So like he was getting after it, right? So I called him up and I was just like, I wanted to check on him, but like, I guess like this idea was in my head and I just sort of like blurted and I was like, Mike, I, you got to tell me about the role of action sports in your career. I mean, I know you tell everybody about the concentration camp story and your TED talk and you talk about your work with artists and I get it. But like, and I lay it out for him and I, and I ask him this question and there's a really long pause. And I like all I think is, oh my God, I've been offended. <laughs> like, you know, the, my mentor, like, oh shit. And after a couple minutes, he says, Stephen, you got to be careful. And I said, Mike, what, what are you talking about? I like, I literally have no idea what he's talking about. My, in my brain, I'm thinking, oh shit, did like the stroke impact has, like, has he lost the plot? Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm like, uh, Mike, uh, careful of what? He's like, well, you do something your whole life for flow. And then you get to be my age and forget about climbing rocks, forget about climbing mountains. Some days I can't get out of bed. You need a backup plan for flow. You've got to be careful. And it was like one flow junkie to another. It wasn't like, you know, mentor, mentee, anything. And it, all that. it was literally like one flow during the other telling me that, like, you know, I, uh, if I, if I'm interested in flow as I age, which obviously I am, um, have as many ways into the state as possible. So because of that and a handful of other reasons, I decided I was going to teach myself how to park ski in my 50s. Now, park skiing is the discipline of skiing that involves doing tricks on jumps and rails and rods and is very acrobatic and it's pretty dangerous. And there's about 11 different biological reasons that say it's supposed to be very difficult for anybody to learn over 35 and pretty impossible once you get to 40 or 50. But there was all this stuff in peak performance aging that on paper, I looked like if you combined it, you older adults should be able to onboard new motor skills in, you know, even really complicated ones. And so I ran a giant experiment and tried to see if I could teach my health park, park ski. I, I made a bunch of criteria. And uh, for reasons that we could talk about later, um, it's like why it was a backup plan and all that stuff. I thought it would take five years. Right. Like, okay, I'm going to learn how to park ski. It's going to take five years, whatever. And I made a list of 20 tricks. That was how I was going to judge progress. That was like zero to intermediate. And once you get to intermediate, right, the, a lot of the danger, like the dumb shit goes, stops happening. So it's a little like safe. It's a little safer. Um, and I figured if it took five years, great. And it took less than a season. I, in fact, I learned how to park ski faster than I've almost learned anything in my entire life. And that was wild. And then my ski partner is a former sponsored athlete who had retired from park skiing after a bad injury and had raised a family and had a career. He took the same protocol and applied it. And he got farther faster than he ever gone before. This was wild. This was also, you know, not evidence. It was the small, those radical experiment peak performance aging anybody run, but it was just a pilot study. The next year we took 17 older adults and using the same principles. Um, and most of them were like, I was a good skier. Ryan, my ski partner, was a good skier. But most of these folks were intermediates. And in four days on the hill using the same protocol, we taught them how to park ski and snowboard. And then, you know, we did a bunch of other stuff with it. But that's the story in our country. And that's sort of the backstory and uh, the story of the book. And, you know, sometimes I think a lot of times when people get good at something, it was play first. And then it was like, oh, this is kind of fun. And then you build upon. Do you think that that acceleration was, and you do talk about it in the book, how in a way when you're older, you can actually be a better student, but that there was something kind of by people, two people who had a background in something, both of you, you know, 
in skiing and, and even in, in a different type of skiing, but that there was sort of a specific sort of approach. It seems like you guys really systematize things. Yeah. And I, so, and so did that talk and also talk about the importance of doing this with a partner, because you talk about having someone to do something with and what, how that really impacts it. But, but also how do you take a goal like this, which is scary, dangerous, big, and then go, okay, we're going to break it down and we're going to go step by step. So the protocol, what did we do? And so the first thing we took a very play oriented approach. We did. We uh, uh, dynamic. It was dynamic, deliberate play that underpinned our approach. And dynamics. So I said, there's a bunch of physical skills that decline over time, right? And you want to train them up, right? Dynamic is a catch-all term for the five categories of functional fitness. Dynamic means strength, stamina, right, agility, balance, and flexibility. So deliberate play is deliberate practice is repetition with incremental management. It's Anders Ericsson's big idea on expert performance, and it, it's a good idea, but there are a number of challenges to it. And the, the truth is, it's great for learning certain kinds of skills. We want to learn math or how to play an instrument, like those kinds of things. It makes a lot of sense. But it turns out in most learning circumstances, deliberate play outperforms deliberate practice all the time. Deliberate play is repetition without repetition, right? It's repetition with improvisation. And it works better for a couple of key reasons. The obvious when you're playing, you're less self-conscious, you're, right? There's no wrong. There's no shame. There's no embarrassment. There's less fear. All that stuff off the table. The second reason is play releases a ton of neurochemicals. You get dopamine, but you also get a ton of endorphins from play. And the more neurochemicals that show up during experience, the better chance it'll move from short-term holding to long-term storage. You don't really get endorphins from deliberate practice. Maybe at the very end, if there's like, pain relief that comes in maybe um if you're like eight hours in but it you know most of the time you're not getting endorphins and they're really big pleasure drugs right and they really cement experience and learning so deliberate play is is better that way and the other thing that i always like to point out deliberate practice is one right answer i did the same thing i just did perfectly with a little variation with deliberate play there's only one wrong answer you did the same thing you did last time every other answer is right and when we get the answer right, we get some dopamine. We get some of these motivating feel-good chemicals that drive behavior forward. So deliberate play tends to wildly outperform all other kinds of, of learning and was really key for these kinds of skills. So that's sort of backstory, right? And then we did a couple of specific things. So one, for a bunch of different reasons that have to do... So all there's in flow science, there's something called the challenge skills balance. It's often called the most important flows triggers, right? If you want more flow in your life, the state has triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. They all work by driving attention in the present moment, right? They maximize focus, a bunch of different ways, but that's, that's what we're doing here. Challenge skills balance is, is one of the most important, the most storied, and it says we pay the most attention to the task at hand. And the challenge is about... 5% greater than the skills we bring to it, right? You want to stretch, but not snap. But what we realized is with older adults, because of what's known as allostatic load, which is the impact of trauma over time, right? On our physiology, on our psychology, that 5% sweet spot can shrink down to like 1% and often without anybody noticing it, right? It's very unconscious. So you sort of feel like the same person you've always been, the same kind of athlete you've always been, or the same kind of performer, whatever it is, 
but there's this really crucial factor. And if you get out of that challenge skills sweet spot, we always like to say it's between boredom and anxiety. Boredom is not enough stimulation. I don't care about paying any attention. Anxiety is overloaded. Yeah. If you've got a one degree sweet spot before you get to overloaded, overloaded means more norepinephrine that blocks fast twitch muscle response. It blocks full scale power. It blo- I mean, there's a bunch of physical properties and it like it retards performance. If you get conscious, you start thinking about what you're doing. It's really, you want to avoid that. So by shrinking it down, our motto is one inch at a time. Start with an established motor pattern, something you do 100% of the time with zero fear and no con- no conscious interference and build on it one inch at a time playfully, improvisationally. So that was that was first and foremost. The second thing is nothing was about trying to learn how to park ski. We broke park skiing down into eight foundational mo- motions, crouching, jumping, slashing, grinding, a 180, a 360, backwards skiing, and such. And the goal was to learn how to interpret terrain features in novel ways with new body motions. Creativity is another flow trigger. When you link ideas together in a new way, that's creativity, that's pattern recognition, you get some dopamine, it'll drive focus. This could be you know, me as a writer, like I'm putting a sentence in order and something clicks, right? Like, oh, I see the pattern, boom. Or it's like, you know, it's a surfer looking at, at the lip of the wave going, oh, that's absolutely perfect for a cutback into a floater, right? Like that that's pattern recognition. So our idea was flow massively amplifies learning. Like studies by the U.S. Department of Defense find we learn 250 to 500% faster than normal in flow. So the goal was, this is where the ski, so the last bit of the protocol, and this is where the ski partner came into play, is we didn't talk a whole lot. There was no verbal instruction. We played follow the leader games. And so there's this really interesting thing that happens when you're playing follow the leader games. And the goal was, like, let's say Ryan, my ski partner, was in front, and he threw a 360 off a jump. Well, I don't really like, 360 is a little above my pay grade. So maybe I threw a nose but a 360 or a slide. I scaled it down so it was only one inch out of my sweet spot. We played those kinds of games a lot. When you watch somebody else do an action, your mirror neurons and motor system runs the exact same pattern. Your brain runs that pattern. And you get a little squirt of dopamine if you can do the move, and you get a little squirt of norepinephrine, fear, anxiety if you don't have the move. So most people take that anxiety as, oh, I shouldn't do this at all. Right. right? No, no. The anxiety just means don't do that thing. Dial it down until you're in your sweet spot and you can do it playfully and execute it with no fear. And just by creatively interpreting terrain features, sooner or later, you're going to drop into flow because these are don't beat after date, don't mean hit, don't mean hit. And once you're in flow, then then you're performing at your best and maybe you do have that move. And that'd be the time to try it if you're going to push, but not until. All right, I'll shut up. You look like you really want to say something. No, 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 because there's just so much good stuff. I want to I want to say something. I just would want to connect on one idea that you mentioned because it is important. I want people to understand it. You say, yeah, we didn't talk a whole lot. You talked, you say in the book that if you talked, it was about sort of like where you were, what you were doing or whatever, but you didn't talk about home talk or all this other stuff because it, it, it sort of impeded the process. So when you're in flow, one of the core things that happens in the brain is the prefrontal cortex deactivates. It's part of your brain that's right behind your forehead, right? And normally, it's a really powerful part of your brain. Logical decision-making is there, sense of morality, willpower, all that stuff is prefrontal cortex. 
it tends to deactivate a lot in flow. That's why time passes so strangely in flow. Time is this calculation performed all over the prefrontal cortex. And when it goes away, we can't separate past from present from future. So we get that deep now experience, right? That's eternal present that happens in flow. But you want it turned off. And when you talk about yourself, when the ego gets activated, the ego is all about the prefrontal cortex and it turns it back on. When you get too emotional, right? The prefrontal cortex turns back on. So what we said is this was, we, we did it with both ourselves. And then when we, we taught people or, or ran that experiment, this was also, we, this was a rule and it was really weird for people. This was the one, like, this was like the, one of the hardest things for most people because skiing, like nobody talks on the rod when you talk on the chairlift. And what we said is, look, you can't talk about yourself. You can ask personal questions because that will get forced people to talk about themselves and the ego is going to get activated can't talk about current events, anything that could scare you, right? And, and, and all that stuff. So we, the rule was you can talk about your skiing or you can make people laugh, right? Those were, that was it. Everything else during this learning period is off the table. And it was really like, it's funny because if you look at what we did, it's not really what we did, it's what we didn't do. So we pulled a lot of stuff that most people put into like learning, especially with complicated, difficult skills like this. And it, it was a lot, but we did a lot less, but um, yeah, I'll stop there and, 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 and let you ask. You. Well, no, I just thought that was important. Cause I, I thought, you know, the other part of that is, you know, when we talk about meditation or, or doing things like that, it is, how do we shut that voice down? That's always about me and I, and all these things. And so interestingly, I thought that not only would that enhance what you were saying you were doing as far as trying to approach getting into flow, but if we even had that practice in life, like, Hey, this would be a good time for me to not be so eye centric and think about all my stuff. Cause I would imagine it would also open up the learning about your inhibitions about, well, I'm too old for this. And I hood it It's like, Hey, you know what? I'm just going to be here and do it. I'm not going to worry if people think I look weird or if I'm the oldest person in this group or any of that. And so I, I thought you could extend out that. Project. Oh yeah. I had to, well, I definitely yeah. like, you know, in drain park, like 90% of the people, it's like kids yeah. with their parents or teenagers, right? Like I'm decades older than, than, than almost everybody else in the terrain parks. And it was getting over the self-consciousness. But that was the other thing about Ryan that worked so well in our favor is we have similar learning preferences. Both of us are a little introverted. We like to learn in private and out of sight. And we would go hide on the far edges of the mountain. And rather than going to the terrain park, we'd turn natural features into our terrain park so we could learn how to sight, right? And that that was really helpful because the, the, the shame and the self-consciousness and the other side of that also, Gabby, the self-expectation, right? Like when you start making progress, that's one of the things that is the most insidious thing about progress is like when you start making progress, you just want more and more and more. And I, this just happened last Wednesday. So two Wednesdays ago, I went to North Star for the first day of the season in a, in a big train park where they finally got everything set up and, you know, uh, we could have had at it, and it was this amazing, one of the best days I've ever had in the train park. I learned like 11 new things. And then we came back a week later this Wednesday, and of course, expectations are through the roof, right? Even though I kept doing everything I can to check myself, there was a part of me that's like, okay, what are you going to do today? What are you going to learn today, right? And like, so there's a thought, like self-consciousness and self-expectation, like both of them get sort of blown out of the water when you're using play, right? Which is why play is so important because those two things are deadly. 
Do you think play, because when we talk about practice, you use the you used the language and, and uh, instruments. And then when we talk about play, it was like, okay, you're on the mountain. Do you think you can bring that same notion of play in a less physical, you know, environment? Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, I, like, I think it's hugely important in any environment. So one, read my friend Catherine Price's book, The Power of Fun which is all about it, right? And Catherine's great on this topic. Um, but yes, um, when one of the things I always do, so this is an old writing trick. When I got stuck, I would find an author that I liked who was really inappropriate for the subject matter. So say I was writing about genetics. I would find like a book by Charles Dickens and I would try to write an article about genetics in the style of Charles Dickens and get it past my editors. Because it was so ridiculously playful and you learned a lot, right? Dickens did a bunch of really cool things. It's just an archaic, but, but like I would, so that was a really common thing, especially when I was a journalist. Every time I got stuck, I would take these very playful, creative learning approaches to getting unstuck. And uh, there, they, I, somebody had taught me a writing exercise years earlier that sort of presaged that and, and which was helpful, which is why I came up with it. But yeah, I do it like, I do that all the time, or I'll give you novelty, right? When novelty is, is, is important in play. And so I'll give you a simple example. Novelty drives flow, drives focus. And now when I have to read neuroscience textbooks for work, which I have to do all the time, I, and, I, and I like them as a general rule, but like, you want to be in flow, you want, like, you need to pay attention. So I'll often leave my office and go to a novel environment, usually a novel outdoor environment, or I'll get a hotel room with a balcony that looks onto mountains or beach or whatever. That novelty, that complexity, these are all flow triggers. They drive dopamine into my system and drive focus, which means that, yeah, I have to read this really challenging thing. And I know sooner or later as I'm reading it, there's going to be creativity, there's going to be pattern recognition, it'll drive me into flow eventually, but I got to be trying to get there. And the novel environment with its novelty, with its complexity, with all that stuff, unpredictability, these are all flow triggers. So it allows me to get into flow and, you know, I make way more progress. And so like, I'll stack up like three or four neuroscience textbooks and go away for two days and do this and I'll get through all of them. Um, and my retention is, is way up as a result. So you can use it all over the place. And it's sort of a playful approach to like learning a subject like neuroscience. I can't help but think like your affinity for kind of punk rock, you know, that relationship of like flow and punk rock, like what is it about it that's in you who is more shy or quiet, introverted, but gravitates towards these sort of really dynamic and powerful areas? What What is it that you think you're... Well, you're so getting punk or- rock. Yeah, I mean, punk was, you know, whatever people think about punk from the outset, and I think I say this in the book, you know, people think about punk and they think about mohawks and anger and, you know, drug abuse. And those things are true, but you're looking at the window dressing and not the window. And punk rock was really about DIY creativity, right? They They locked punks out of the music industry. So punks had to create their own labels and their own bands and their own flyers and book their own tours. And I, you know, the first magazine I ever worked for was a zine that I started because I had weird hair and nobody was going to give me a job, right? I was a old punk rock or I was a punk rocker. And, you know, in the nineties I had dreadlocks and earrings and like, nobody was going to hire me and, you know, an ad agency or something like that or a magazine. Nobody looked like that back then. So like, 
this was just what we did. And so like DIY creativity, and we took anger and turned it into creativity. And that was the real salvation of punk. And that was, you know, that's, I think, very present in sort of in, in my NAR style quest. You know, I went on this quest. I had unfinished business in skiing. I had unfinished business in general, but it had carried into skiing. And so, like I always say, this kind of NAR style quest is really great for peak performance aging. It's important. We can talk about it for a lot of different reasons, but like in choosing what not everybody's going to want to learn how to park ski. Everybody's going to have their own thing. And some of them don't even have to involve action sports at all, right? Like, we took all these ideas after we ran the, the second experiment, we stripped out action sports. We replaced the dynamic physical activities so people were training their bodies. We stri- and we trained 350 people for with two goals. One, can we explode their mindset towards aging? So critical point about peak performance aging. The mindset of old, so the voice in your head that says you're too old for this shit, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of reasons it starts to develop, but it can start developing in your late 20s. And from a peak, from an aging, healthy aging, forget peak performance, it's deadly. People with a positive mindset towards aging, and there's like 50 years worth of data here, a positive mindset towards aging. I am thrilled with the, like the second half of my life, and I think my best days are ahead of me, and you know, exciting possibilities are lie ahead. That translates to an extra seven and a half years of healthy longevity. Like if you're morbidly obese and have a shitty mindset towards aging, in your mindset, it's more important, right? You'll live longer. It's that fundamental. So we wanted to explode people's mindset around aging. And we wanted to see if we could put them on a NAR style quest. And when I said NAR style quest, I mean something that is a personal impossible, that feels like a sort of impossible challenge for yourself. And one that if you were to accomplish, it would totally explode your old mindset around aging, right? And we ran it as a training for like 350 people. And people did everything. We Like there was one woman who went from like being a mediocre artist to having a solo, her first solo show. There was a guy in his 60s who learned how to kite surf for the first time. There was a woman who like decided to learn how to be a triathlete. There was physical stuff, intellectual stuff, a lot of creative stuff. So it's, you know, one of the other reasons action sports matters is because it's one stop shopping for dynamic movement. Yeah. Right. And if you don't want to do action sports, like they know there's really great studies that have done where they've looked at like different activities for longevity. And if you join a gym, you'll get about an extra year and a half of life, healthy longevity. Uh, swimming is three years, but badminton is seven and tennis is nine and action sports appear to be 10. Right. And why these other sports, one, they're, they're social. So that's really important for peak performance aging. But two, they're dynamic. You're not leaving any categories untrained. And they also work on things like fast twitch muscle response and hand eye coordination, which are also good skills to be training over time. So there's an advantage to these kind of dynamic things. And you don't want to skimp on that, even if your quest is intellectual, right? Or creative or emotional for that matter. I think that's such an important point because, you know, I'm working in more of the meathead section, you know, when you work in kind of health, health, let's say wellness, whatever. It's like, I'm like the meathead part of it is so on the low end of what is about wellness. It's like you're saying, it's these other things. It is your mindset. Um, You talk about, forgive me if I'm getting the name wrong, like Ellen Langer or Longer about mindset yeah, yeah. and everything. Yeah, yeah. So, if people want to go deeper into that beyond our country. Yeah. Let me tell you the, LL, let me let's, let's tell the Ellen Langer counterclockwise story. Cause so if, if peak performance aging had parents, it would be Ellen Langer and Jean Cohn. And Ellen Langer is a psychologist. She was at Harvard forever. She is awesome, awesome, awesome. And 
Her early work is on sort of language and priming. And she starts to suspect back in the early 80s that, like, wow, ageism is a really common stereotype. It's still the most common stereotype in the world and the most socially acceptable stereotype. Like, I go outside these days with any other stereotype, I'm canceled. But I can go outside and be like, ah, you're too old for that shit. And nobody even blanks. It's totally socially acceptable. But I'm too old for this shit. Those aging stereotypes, Becca Levy, who's at Yale, who studied under her, did a ton of, like, they're deadly. We're literally killing older people. And I mean, like, over 50s with how we talk about them. It's so damaging um, to health and longevity and everything else. But early on, long before we knew any of this stuff, Ellen starts to wonder, wow, is something about aging this, like, are we priming ourselves into old age? Like, what's the relationship between mindset and aging? Nobody really asks these questions. So she gets a group of 16, 80-year-olds, basically, and she drives them to a monastery two hours outside of Boston, and she decks the monastery out to look like 1961. It's 1981. The monastery looks exactly like 1961, right? Same magazines, same books. They, they watch movies from 1961. And the people are divided into two groups. Group A, they just kind of reminisce about 20 years ago, 1961. I did this. I did that. The second group has to literally pretend it's 1961. They have to talk about it in the present tense. As it was, they, like the Cuban Missile Crisis is going on. And what are we going to do? Right? Like that kind of stuff. And they measure everything cognitively, physically that you could possibly measure before and after. And like the changes are crazy. So Ellen discovers, she's the one who discovers that aging is as much a mental process as a physical process, right? And this is where the first big data, the folks on the other side of, in, in, the, in the group um, who pretended it was 1961, like their eyesight improved on a Snelling eye chart. Their hearing improved in hearing tests. Cognition and like 11 different tests improve. Their gait improve. Their arthritis goes away so much they become taller and their fingers get longer. After five days of pretending it was to be 20 years younger, that was like sort of the opening. It was 1981. It was the first time people were like, oh shit, there's all like, we don't know what we're talking about with aging. We got to totally reframe everything. And one thing like I want to mention earlier, because you touched on meditation for a second. When you look in really long-lived communities, blue zone communities and things like that, one of the commonalities among all these communities is they have rituals for de-stressing, regular daily rituals for de-stressing, right? And this could be saunas, this could be mindfulness, this could be yoga, this could be walking in the woods. It doesn't like there's a variety of these rituals, but they all flush stress hormones out of our system. And as you know, I'm sure I've talked about a ton on this podcast, Mindfulness is one of the most powerful tools for that. So de-stressing re regularly also really matters to this conversation. Can we just touch upon, because I was curious how this was possible, and I don't know if it was Gene Cohen, where you talked about wisdom is sort of scattered throughout the brain when, when you were talking about learning, you know, and I sort of thought, I was trying to think, I was like actually trying to guess. I was like, well, maybe wisdom is something that you accumulate over time and it's spread out. I don't know. But you, you said it's a, you know, sort of a cluster of neurological traits and maybe we could just touch on that. So... It's with the, the wisdom definitions are all over the place. 
people are all over the place. Um, Mihajic sent me high has the definition of wisdom that, that I sort of like the most he talks about is you can consider somebody, you know, he points out that wisdom is very much involved in joy, first of all. So he says somebody, somebody has wisdom when they have a deep respect for the path, yet a huge desire to improve upon it, a respect for self, others, and the planet, and like a joyful immersion in life. And wisdom means a lot of different things. But it's the, so what you're talking about is some research that starts in the 90s. This is where the, the holes in the long, slow route theory of aging first started showing up when we figure out that if you want to protect against cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's, the two best lifelong learning is, is, is the secret. And, and why is that? Why, why would that be the case? And, and what do you want to learn? So it turns out that Cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's, most of that impacts the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain we've been talking about. It is from an evolutionary sense, the newest part of the brain, and thus the most vulnerable to disruption. It's if you don't suffer the consequences of aging and your brain stem. Like other shit can go wrong back there, but you don't age back there, right? The prefrontal cortex ages. And a lot of these things are localized. Like this part of the prefrontal cortex will get attacked and that sort of thing. If you want to protect the prefrontal cortex, you want learning and more specifically you want expertise and wisdom and there the definitions are very different but the way to think about it in a sense is expertise is all the stuff you learn consciously and wisdom is all the stuff you learn unconsciously or non-consciously that's not accurate at all definition wise but it's a good practical way to think about it and go deeper but here's what's important they're both expertise and wisdom are these diffuse networks in the brain. So you want to protect the brain against cognitive decline. You want to birth new neurons and you want these neurons to form robust networks in the brain that are very redundant, lots of redundancy. Wisdom matters because in wisdom, you don't just learn the fact, you learn the rules, the systems around the fact, how processes work, those sorts of things. That's that's wisdom, whereas expertise is more about the fact in this particular thing, right? Wisdom might be the fact in this particular thing and the dynamics in the room about all the people who were there and did they like each other or not like each other and you know all that stuff that we notice all the time and impact stuff. That's a lot of that's wisdom. These are very diverse networks in in the prefrontal cortex and both really matter. And um, wisdom is interesting because you mentioned this earlier, so. As we enter our 50, four, late 40s and early 50s, Gene Cohn figured out that there are really profound shifts in the brain and how the brain processes information. These are good things, not bad things. But in our 50s, certain genes only turn on uh, over with experience. So you get like access to like genetics turns on. The two halves of the brain start talking to each other like never before and working together and cooperating. And normally, they're kind of antagonistic, right? But they start to cooperate. And then the brain starts to recruit these underutilized regions. And all of these things lead to whole new levels of intelligence, creativity, wisdom, and empathy. So if you, we do this stuff right, as we enter our 50s, wisdom, which is so neuroprotective against cognitive decline, actually starts becoming ours. Right? It's, it's part of the aging brain. Now, there's a bunch of stuff you have to do beforehand to really get access to those superpowers. And then if you really want to hang on to them, there's a bunch of stuff you have to do to hold on to them. But wisdom, empathy, creativity, and intelligence are four of the most crucial traits for thriving in the 21st century. So just 
maybe you can't go too deep into it, but what are some of the things that you, God, it's so funny because wisdom, um, it reminds me, um, Arthur C. Brooks wrote a, a, a book that talked about the sort of the second part of your life where you can, you can sort of synthesize information better. And, and, you know, this part. Yeah, so the, that's big picture thinking, right? Uh, and you get you in, this is one of the things that happened in, in your fifties. If you get it right is systems thinking. Right. Right. That's what Arthur was talking about in that book. You actually get, you get systems thinking, you get, uh, it's relativistic thinking is one name for it, which is like, you basically learn that things aren't black and white. Everything is sort of a shade of gray and right. Like it's not, it's really easy to like have firm moral lines when you're 18. It's a lot trickier when you're in your forties and you're like, Oh wait, it's messy everywhere. And right. And then you also learn multi-perspectival thinking. So you can see things from other people's perspective. The ego quiets is really what happens, right? Our egos get the fuck out of the way and we can actually start to see things from other people's perspectives. And those are the, those changes unlock these, all of these other advancements. And they're not guaranteed, as I said. Meaning all your practices leading leading up to that and then going after? So, it, so it's interesting. No, it's actually interesting. And this is stuff. This isn't my research. And this isn't Alan Landers. This is the Harvard Adult Development Project, which was like two of the longest lived studies. It's 80-year studies of adult development. And the Danford cohort, the Terman cohort, which is another 80-year study of adult development. And, and this is where most of this started out and then got built out by psychologists after it. But there are gateways of adult development, basically. If you want to thrive in the second half of your life, there's certain things you have to do by certain ages. I, I like to say that like peak performance aging actually starts young, right? You can make interventions in your late 80s, and they're going to really actually matter and impact quality of life. But if you really want to get it right, there's psychological stuff that you want to start paying attention to as early as your 20s. And the first is you, you need to solve the crisis of identity by age 30. Then know who you are in the world. 40 is match fit. Basically, you need a tight fit between who you are in the world and what you do for a living, what you do with the bulk of your time. It's got to align with your values and your strengths and your passions and your purposes. And then by 50, it's forgiveness of self and forgiveness of others. And it really matters. And if you've never done compassion or love and kindness meditation, it's probably the best tool for forgiveness available. So it's great. You just run the script in your head and you don't even have to do anything. It actually does the work for you. So Phenomenal tool, lots of great research on it, but it's really good for, for forgiveness in your 50s to get past this hurdle of adult development. But if you do all those things right, like the without identity, you can't figure out match fit, right? You can't, like, if you don't know who you are, or you right. don't know, right, what's the perfect vocation for you. And if you haven't forgiven yourself and others, you're not going to get that multi perspectival thinking. You're not going to get the empathy. You're not going to get the wisdom. And then once you have these things in your 50s, it's actually creativity that unlocks these thinking styles. So you could like do all this successfully, but if you're not regularly engaged in sort of creative activities in your fifties, um, that activities that require that kind of pattern recognition we were talking about earlier, you'll get locked out. And then if you want to hang on to these things in your sixties, seventies and eighties, you need two things matter. You have to fight down risk aversion because that goes up over time. Risk aversion produces fear. Fear blocks empathy, wisdom, and creativity for a bunch of different neurobiological reasons. You got to train. You got to train risk. You know, as, as, as Laird says, you know, do something that scares you every day. That's a really simple <laughs> mantra for training rest. And physical fragility matters, right? Like if your body is freaking falling apart on you, yeah. doesn't matter what cognitive superpowers you have. We all know we like 
brightest people in the world. We get sick, you're dumb, right? Like, so forget about it. It doesn't, you've got to train the five categories of functional fitness starting your 50s, right? Because starting your 50s, while you can keep training these and advance them much later in life than we need possible, by the time you're in your 50s, if you're not moving forward, you're going backwards, right? That's, that's the other, it's, you, you, ha- you really have to do this or you're going to decline much more rapidly. It's such an interesting uh, dance. I always feel like as you as you sort of become quote an official adult, whatever that means, it's like how do you move closer to who you if are? If you figure it out, would you let me know? Oh <laughs> I don't think I know yet. I, I know less, believe me. But it's like you move closer to your own inner truth, right? Like you say, "Hey, know who you are," and then simultaneously, somehow letting go of that and not taking that so serious. It's like this dual thing happening because for that wisdom or that acceptance, it's almost like having a certain amount of larger allowance and less definitive and more gray and more nuance. And then simultaneously having some really strong truths that show up for you, but then you're not dogmatic. It's like always such a funny dance to me as we're moving. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great, yeah, no, you're totally right. Gabby, And that's a really good description of it. And it, cause it, it is true. And in fact, older adults who are, who end up dogmatic, don't thrive, right? It, uh, it, it, that's not bene- that's not sort of as beneficial. You uh, openness to experience really matters, sort of in, in the second half of our life. Matters throughout, but it really matters in the second half of our life for a lot of ways. But you're right, and it's we sort of you get much more compassionate towards yourself, I think. But you also know exactly who you are a lot more, right? Um, and so you can, you, you get to make much smarter decisions about how you're living. Um, and it's, I don't know, I don't beat myself up. I mean, I still look at the voice in my head as a character in my book because, you know, I, I still have it more with the voice in my head, but I have to tell you, like the version that shows up in our country at, at 53 is very different than the version who showed up at 20. And, you know, at 20, that voice would win the arguments. And now I can, I can win some of them. Right. It's, it's a beautiful thing, though, when you, when you can go, because in a way, that's a form of flow when you're able to adapt and keep moving through your life that way, because then you, you don't set up like concrete. And you and you sort of stay that way, and and it is uncomfortable. And and by the way, for anyone listening to this, I think domestic living, all of that is not really working in the favor of what you're talking about, right? It's like we have to fight because it's like okay, you get up in the morning, you okay, people have a ritual, they're going to work, then they, if they have children, there's some heavy duty patterns that can lock you under uh, the exact opposite of what you're talking about. So I I really appreciated, yeah this, this experiment, because it was, it's a strong reminder to people in their own way. You did it your way that it, that it is possible. But I want to go back to Ryan because that he seems pivotal, having a partner, having a partner in crime, having someone to go on the quest with. This is, this is true to so many things. Yeah, I think it's true to so many things. And it was new to me. I'm a solo actor. <laughs> I don't have ski, right? I like, I'm an introvert. I like, this was, um, it was new. It was, it was, it was a new thing to me. And what was beneficial? There's a handful of things I want to talk about. The first is that a robust, not a robust social connection and social belonging really matter for peak performance aging, right? 
and it matters for peak performance and just sort of health and well-being and positive, like all these reasons. But as we get older, it starts to play a bigger and bigger and bigger role. So one of the things about having the right ski partner is you sort of have the same pathways into flow. You like the same things. And like, that was one of the things about like we, we, we use the exact same flow triggers in the exact same order in the exact same way. And we were interested in going the exact same place. We had similar goals stylistically and artistic. And that really mattered because I can't as an introvert, right? And I'm married to an introvert. And like my wife and I can go a long time without even talking, right? And we like it that way. I can literally go weeks and weeks and weeks without getting the kind of social connection you need for healthy aging. Now forget peak performance and just healthy aging or even healthy living. So what I want is I want root flow experiences because they give you all the neurochemicals you get, you need for so in much more condensed time to get, um, in blue zones uh, where people live a long time. Some of them will spend like six hours a day on social connection, hanging out with their friends and family and that much. I don't have that kind of time. I don't know if you do, but like that's a lot of time. So I can't do that. So I have to condense it down. And the only way to do that is group flow experiences. So one, having the right partner was great for that. But for me, the, the I mean, first of all, it's this kind of shit, like pushing yourself, scaring yourself over and over and over again. I, I did it for, you know, 10 years alone almost when I was living in New Mexico and trying to, you know, learn how to big mountain ski. And I was mostly solo. And it's, um, it's a very different proposition. It's lonely out there. And it's, you know, it's so much more fun with somebody else. But the, the main thing with Ryan is immediate feedback is really important to progression, to learning. And like one of the things for me, for me, that was most important is like the no go. Like when, when am I supposed to go? Like when am I supposed to do this thing? When is it safe? And when is it not? And so I developed um, a system early on where I realized for a bunch of different reasons that if Ryan can do something, I have to do it immediately. I, I can do it with three caveats. One, if I was feeling too much fear, back off and come back later. Two, if I was exhausted, don't ever try it, right? Don't try to push through exhaustion ever. And exhaustion is tricky in high flow activities because flow produces a bunch of pain-killing neurochemicals. And andamine and endorphins, these kill pain. And so you often, if you're really in flow, you may not even notice. So like, I have signs that I look for with exhaustion. If I start under jumping jumps or like my turn starts sliding, those are signs that I'm exhausted. I maybe still feel like I got it all, but those are signs. And the third one is if I get an ego reaction, like Ryan does something really hard and I'm like, oh, oh. Yeah, that trick, but I'm going to do it any, right? Like <clears throat> if those three things showed up, it was an immediate no, because that's an easy way to go to the hospital. But other than something I had to do, it was mandatory. And what was great about that is I set up these rules at the start of my quest and I, it took choice off the table. And I knew in like scary situations, I don't make the best decisions. I wanted to like guard against my own bad decision-making process because fear just really messes with judgment. And you like in the situations I knew I was going to be going into, I wanted to guard against that. So I set up these rules for safety, but having Ryan to like lead the charge a lot of the time and knowing like, Based on these rules, based on like, and a lot of it was like, we have similar body types. We've trained in the same way. We like to do the same things. We're both, like, both of us have fondnesses for like, t 
tight openings between trees, for example, like that's not for everyone, right? You like, and for me, it doesn't bother me at all. And for Ryan, it doesn't bother me. And we'll jump between like from between trees to between trees. And most people don't want to do that, right? And like, that's an immediate no for a lot of people. But like, there's a ton of stuff I won't do in the drain park, but not like that stuff doesn't bother me. And we share those things, right? And that was sort of hugely, hugely important as well. And yeah, just I, I having somebody also just like to cheer when you do something right, mm-hmm. to notice when you actually like, you know what I mean? Like if there's nobody around, you've been working on a trick for like months and you finally get it right, it feels really good. But when somebody else cheers, it's a big deal. Yeah, because that isn't ego. That's that's something else. That's like, hey, you've been grinding it out and look at this progress, like celebrating the progress. It isn't like, oh, you were badass. You got the trick. It's like, oh man, you did it. It's, it's, you, and yeah, it's the, it's the progress. Yeah. It's the progression is what you're celebrating. Totally. Right. It's, the, I mean, somebody, that, you know, they, when that's the turn on it's, the, and I think people forget that because it's so hard to be a student, but that's where it's all at. It's like, oh, I couldn't do that yesterday. And today I can, it's like, it's the one, I mean, one inch at a time is the, that's the cool, the learning is the cool stuff. Often like, you know, if you're cheering for something super gnarly, just start somebody who did something stupid, right? Like they made it, like they may have done, they may have gotten away with it, but can't like you're cheering sort of the wrong thing. Yeah. That's that, that's like, I mean, you can celebrate it or not celebrate it, but um, it's the learning that, that, that you want to cement. Right. It's not the attention or the outrageousness. It's like, wow, you didn't know how to do that. And man, you've been busting your ass and now you can. I mean, that's awesome. So when you, you talk in the book a little bit about kind of your training, you know, with cardio and strength and balance and flexibility, could you just break up, um, you know, what that looked like for you for, for this approach, because you had to build the skills and you know, that took other work out off, obviously off the mountain. It did. And I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny to have you asking me this question because I borrowed so much from you and Laird along the way in how I think about some of these things. So I've been working out. I always tell people like, if you're nude, if you're coming into this stuff, especially older in life, Start with a movement professional that just like can watch you walk and figure out like what do we need to fix first, right? Because you don't want to get injured right off the bat, and, and and you and you know this, but like if you haven't worked out in a while, your body will shift workloads to your prime movers, your big muscles, and it'll neglect your stabilizers, right? So you'll come back to a sport and your quads may be giant, but your hip flexor hasn't worked in a decade, and you're going to tear it right away, right? So you really like you really want to like. If you haven't been doing this stuff, come in slowly. But I came in, so I started training with a weight vest. And there were a bunch of reasons why I did it. But weight vest hiking trains almost all. If you stretch before and after, it will hit all five categories of functional fitness. You get balance, agility, um, strength, and stamina. And, it, and like I don't have the time to train all those things independently right? I'm busy. And so I needed, and I was, and even better, I have a dog. So I have to walk my dog every day anyways, right? And we walk in the mountains. So like, it was the easiest thing in the world. I'm like, okay. And I started really slowly and worked my five pound weight, 10 pound weight. I mean, like, and I kept holding myself back because the mob don't get hurt. Don't be like, you know, if I set out to say, okay, today I'm going to do 40 minutes. 
don't do 42 or 45, literally do 40 minutes and tomorrow do 41 and then like slow, slow, slow. So I did, I did a lot of that. And one of the things, so one of the most important things, we lose bone density over time. And this impacts both cognition and our, the, um, and the bones are the, the mineral factories for the body, right? And they like, your brain runs on calcium. Where do you think it lives, right? This is why the single most important correlate for preserving cognitive function and physical function is actually strong legs. And some of it is legs lead to mobility, which leads to better social connection. Some of it is your leg bones are your storehouses of stuff we need to run the brain. So a lot of times when people talk about like declining cognitive function over time, no, 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 no. It's actually, you're, you're not training up bone density and that's the problem. And there's, you know, if you don't want to hike with a weight vest, which is a great way to train up, there's companies like OsteoStrong where they figured out how to perfectly load bones and increase bone density. Um, and it's like no sweat, no pain. Like you can start there. So there's like ways in a place for anybody to start with this stuff. Weight vests were, were sort of my way. In. And, you know, as I sort of moved closer in, started doing sports-specific movement because you got to train sports-specific dynamic movement. Otherwise, you're going to end up injured later also. And I uh, I added as much muscle to my frame as possible because I'm skinny and I didn't want to break. And also because um, everything I was going to do, I was doing required strong legs. If my, I wanted my legs in the best shape of, of my life and I, and I got them there. In fact, this past summer, I set my new uh, maximum squat um, at 55. So, um, and it's still going up, which is, which is fun and cool. And I did that because I like exhaustion leads to injury. And I did not, I did everything I possibly could not to be injured. And I, and I didn't mind that I had to train for 11 months before I actually started. I mean, did a little bit of part skiing in, in the interim and that's in the book, but I took me, I, I, it was really, it was a long process before I was like, okay, I'm ready to do this. Because I really wanted to be as safe as possible. Yeah, and I think that's an important point because if someone reads this book. It's a, it's a, it is. I mean, it's called Nar Country. It is a gnarly undertaking, and you were doing gnarly things, but yet it was still done in a systematic and thoughtful way that had a ton of preparation. So I, I always want people to try new things, but still, it's you know, you want to have a plan and a strategy like you did, and. You you mentioned this and you said, you know, hey, listen, these relationships as we get older are so important. And at one point you said even the data s- sort of lends itself to over lifestyle, like even over lifestyle, meaning, okay, like, do you eat perfect? Do you never eat processed foods? Yep. It's actually more important for you to have these relationships. Yeah. And I, so I, I, I really- So let's do, uh, please. You finish. No, I really, I just really like that because I spend a lot of time in the space about talking about, you know, your mitochondria and processed food and chronic inflammation and all these things that I do believe in. But you said it so simply and so directly in the book about, hey, listen, this is what's so important. And obviously, like they talk about in the Harvard study, connection and all of that. But I just wanted to bring that up again because I, it's just that reminder. Yeah, you know, Gabby, if you were to sum up peak performance aging in a sentence, which I'll do in a sentence in a second for you, notice there's nothing about diet, there's nothing about supplements. There's like most of the things that people think are important don't show up in the sentence. Peak performance aging, if you want to like rock to you drop, 
You want to regularly engage in challenging, creative, and social activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. That's peak performance aging in a sentence. That's everything you absolutely need to do on a regular basis. And it's, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are nine known causes of aging. All of them link back to inflammation and the mitochondria. Like you want to fight inflammation at every level, right? Because it's what ages you. But um, the even the best way to do that is to gauge in challenging creative and social activities that, you know, demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. Stephen, I really... We can break that down more if you want, but... I, I, can we break it down just a little more? Just a little more. Sure. Where it, do you want me to go in? Well, I just... I think sometimes people, if they're, like you said, they're risk averse. So it, it, it gets this weird. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's start at the beginning. Challenging social and creative activities. Challenging because the challenge skills balance because it drives us into flow. And flow is the engine of adult development. It, it actually promotes health and longevity. We don't have time to go into why, but like it boosts your immune system in a really significant way. The challenge matters. Social matters because social, social connection equals uh, mindset. Seven and a half years of health and longevity is what you get from social connection. So it's, you know, more important than quitting smoking or losing weight and, you know, those things. And creativity is unlocks the superpowers of aging, right? Dynamic, deliberate play. Right. We talked about, right? And novel outdoor environments is the last part. Novelty is a flow trigger. We talked about that and super important. Outdoor environments is the last bit. And here's the cool thing. So we talked earlier about neurogenesis, the birth of new neurons, new neural nets. Most of the neurons in the adult brain that are born are born in the hippocampus, which is the part of your brain that does long-term memory and location map making, mm -hmm. does place cells and grid cells. That's what's in the hippocampus. It's because we're, we have all this hunter-gatherers. So like nothing is more important to survival than remembering where you were when you had an emotionally charged incident. Where did that bear attack you? So you never go back near that cave again. Where was the ripe fruit tree after the long, hard winter? Where's that watering hole that we crossed a desert to find, right? That's survival. So the brain is built for that. All of these new neurons are birthed in the hippocampus and then they form other memories elsewhere in the brain. Usually they migrate to the prefrontal cortex as we talked about. But if you're having novel, experiences in outdoor environments. One, outdoor environments, as you know, lowers stress, fights inflammation, just being in nature, right? Boosts serotonin, does all that stuff. So you're fighting aging and you're birthing new neurons so you're preserving cognitive function. Well, Stephen Kotler, I appreciate your new book, NAR Country. I want to ask you if there's any last, I don't know, invitation or reminder for people because you know, a lot of times people might hear this or, re or read your book and think, oh, well, that was okay for Steven. You know, he was already good at skiing and, you know, he's a very intelligent guy and, he, you know, he sort of took this on. I just, I think, you know, listen, even if it's like a dance class, it's like this idea. Yeah. So, I mean, one, go to the video. So I just want to tell you this story. So if you go to the video, or if you go to narcountry.com and you click on the peak performance aging experiment video, right? I told you we had a National Geographic camera and follow us around. So at the end of the video, you'll see a guy. He says, my name is Rick Wicks and I'm 68 years old and I definitely caught some air in the narcountry program. And I thought that was pretty good for an old guy. What's not in that video is the following. And this is the story I want to close with. 
he's first of all an intermediate skier right a he's 68 years old we had a meeting before the experiment began where i laid out what we were going to do people volunteered for it they knew we were going to do it they were all terrified and rick like one like he wins the award like we i laid everything out we were going to do and how it was going to work and all that stuff and he just sort of is like I am 68 years old and I've been skiing for 50 years and I've never caught air in my life and I'm not going to start now. And we were like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. We're not going to ask you to. Don't worry about that at all. And it's so every time I watch that video, I laugh because I'm like, nobody else gets the joke. But like, I get the joke because this guy was so ornery about it. And like, that's what I think about. Um, and yeah, you. I mean, like park skiing was my thing. Right. The point is that you want a challenging activity that's going to help you explode your notions about what's possible in the second half of your life. It can be anything. Right. And by the way, heart skiing is one thing I did. I'm also retaught teaching myself how to draw again for the first time since I was in art school 30 years ago. And I'm teaching myself the piano because Six seven eyes said, "Have a backup plan. Have as many gateways in the flow as you possibly can." So yeah, park skiing is great. It's mm. awesome. It's super important. But I'm also drawn and music, and you know, I'm not stopping there. Park skiing is just where I started. Well, it's so tangible. It's so sort of extreme that it really lays it out to people, like, "Hey, what is possible?" So I think that that motion uh, was was actually so impactful because it's like people can be like, whoa, you know, this is, this is a real. Cause it's nuts. Most people just are like, yes. what you did, what it just doesn't even make any sense. Yes. And, um, you know, even my friends who were professional athletes who, you know, there's a story in the book where I bump into Jeremy Jones and Hood, you know, long time pro snowboarder, who I know, you know, and I tell Jeremy uh, like what I'm doing and he just starts laughing at me. He's like, dude, how many problems have you broken up so far? <laughs> you know, this is another one of your crazy ass experiments. Right. And, you know, even my, like, even my, my, my friends who, who are actually like older and pro athletes were like, you're doing what? Yeah. I, you know, I live with somebody, as you know, that, ha- you know, sort of lives this message, but I want you to know that I was re re-inspired by your book because it is an outside source. You know, sometimes like when somebody lives with you, you're just like, oh, that's just how it is. And oh, Laird's just gnarly and that's easy for him to say. But I want you to know that it really was a big prod to me to remind me like, hey, is my window shortening? Am I down to 3% or 2%? And do I need to open that up? So I just, I want to thank you. And I want to thank you for your time. And, and, um, and I look forward to seeing what the new, the next you know, um, accidental project will be. Well, we're going to, we're going to, we're building team geezer. Wait, team what? Is our, is our, is yeah, team geezer. <laughs> we're going to, we're, we're going to build a professional action sports team of over fifties. We've got flow or die <laughs> in our country division team geezer. We've got a logo already. Like we're working out apparel. That's what's next. That's why I'm taking next year off because I'm, I'm leading into Team Geezer. Yeah, great. And you know what's funny is I it just it also reminds me like Laird. I, I don't know you knew probably about Don Wildman, Laird's friend who you know eventually passed away in his age. Well, so by the way, I have to tell you that I mean Laird and I have been having these conversations on peak performance aging. I mean forever because of him. Yeah. Right. And 
because I mean, you know, I, I think I met Don the first time I met you guys. In fact, I know I did. And he was already old. <laughs> like he was old. That was he was 60 by then. And I remember thinking, holy crap, I couldn't keep up with Laird. I was in my twenties trying to keep up with Laird. And here's a student in his 60s who's keeping up with Laird. And I remember talking to Laird when Don was in his late 70s and he was telling me about a, like a snowboard adventure they went on together. And like those are the stories. You know, the other one that was so, uh, when I ski at, at, at Palisades, at Squaw, and it's a, you, you know, Squaw is packed with pros and, you know, everything else. And it's usually, they, they love big posses of skiers at, at Squaw or Palisades. I don't, I don't understand why they like that so much. Like, let's get 70 people in a, in a chart line. But Tom Day is the guy who's always at the head of the line. And Tom Day is like the original Warren Miller extreme skier. Then he becomes Cameron. He's 60. Six, I believe, and literally, like you've got Olympic downhillers in the posse, and Tom's at the front of the line. So there was Tom, there was done. There were these men or and women who you know you'd see in your life, and you'd be like, "Well, wait a minute!" Like either they're really, 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 really radical exceptions, right? Or we got something wrong, yeah, right? And I'm I don't believe in the radical exceptions. I think most of us are, you know pretty much one way or another and um i think it's really like science doesn't tend to show you you know what i mean you don't yeah. like most of us are pretty average one way or another and we've just it's what we we've built on what we have and i and the thing that i always and i i really agree with you on that but that i always appreciate about don is i never felt like don and this just goes back to your messaging was resisting being older See, so it's like, it's even that, right? It's like, well, I'm going to, there's, cause there's all sometimes like schools of thinking like, well, I'm going to show you because I'm 75. It's like, he didn't even have that. It's like, Hey, that looks fun and kind of hard. I'm going to, and I'm interested. So I'm going to do it. And I think that that's maybe the other side is for people not to take this on as like a defiance too, but just as an embracing of, of like, Hey, does that turn, yeah, I, on? you know? I think that I think that's so key because first of all, you don't like your body is aging. Like that's happening, right? Like you want to work with it, right? Like you're not like there's there's you want to work with your biology. That's peak performance, right? Fighting your biology, it you know it never it never works in any any way. And no, I agree with you. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, he was he was actually one of the, one of the guys I, I thought about for a really long time yeah. um, when I was thinking about this book. I appreciate you, Stephen. Thank you. I appreciate you, Gabby. Thanks for your interest in this work. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click GabbyReese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. Stay tuned for a bonus episode coming this Thursday where I go deeper on one of the topics that really resonated with me. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at Gabby Reese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners. the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.